This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you crave technology that leads, if you appreciate design that inspires, if you want driving dynamics that excite, meet the one. The remarkable BMW 1 Series. Featuring front and rear parking sensors, cruise control, fully digital display with navigation and real-time traffic information, along with BMW's latest voice control intelligent personal assistant, all a standard. Meet the one with your own exclusive video consultation. Book yours today at bmw.ie. Welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and I've got a bumper episode for you today with two big names. Um, first of all, we're going to be hearing from Dan Jarvis, who is Labour MP for Barnsley Central, but is also a Metro Mayor for South Yorkshire. And look, the Metro Mayors have really come into their own during this COVID crisis. So I spoke to Dan about that, about the future of devolution, levelling up and really what he'd like to see from Rishi Sunak in the budget next month, plus his plans for the future. Um, And then after that, I've got Vince Cable, who is here to chat about his new book, of course, former leader of Liberal Democrats, and his new book, Money and Power, looks at the um, various politicians throughout history and their impact on economies and how they've shaped our economies of today. And he told me there's plenty our politicians in Whitehall to learn from them. So look, we'll uh, speak to Dan first and then we'll hear from Vince. Hey Dan, it's so good to have you on Pod's Own Country. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Oh, not too bad. It's uh, snowing in London where I am at the moment. It looks like a bit of a picture postcard outside, but um, not that not that we've been out to enjoy it, unfortunately, because we're all stuck inside, aren't we? Well, Barnsley was looking like Narnia the other day. It's been very cold. Uh, I just had a conversation with my counterpart in Pune in India, and he was telling me it's 30 degrees there. So a bit different from South Yorkshire. Slightly different, just a little bit. Um, look, I'm really glad that we've uh, got you on today. And it's been uh, you've, you've been in my book to track down to get onto Pod's Own Country for a while, because I'm really, really keen to have a chat about levelling up and devolution and what we're hoping to see you know, coming in the in the next few months. And I suppose to jump straight in, I think, you know, jobs like yours, these mayoral jobs have really come into their own during the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen, you know, the likes of yourself shouting up for your area. Is that something you'd agree with? Do you feel like, you know, you've had a real responsibility placed on you at this time? 
Yes, I think if you go back 12 months, people probably didn't know much about Metro Mayors, didn't have much of an understanding of the work that they did. And I think we've seen throughout the pandemic that the mayors have come to forefront in terms of the bringing together of the economic recovery plans, in terms of the work that they've been doing at a sub-regional level to coordinate activity in, in response to the coronavirus. So I think that that is a positive thing from the point of view of the mayors and devolutions. I think the missing link in all of this, though, is the sort of real desire from national government to partner closely with regional leaders. That's not Mm -hmm. a party political point. It's just at a point of crisis, such as we are working our way through, you really need joined up government. And I think that the mayors and local government need to be much more closely aligned into the the national government decision-making process. And I think we haven't seen that in a way I would have liked in the management of the pandemic. But what I think is absolutely crucial is is that we emerge from lockdown and we begin the long process of the economic recovery, that mayors are intimately involved in that process because we understand both the challenges and opportunities from an economic point of view in our areas And you're not going to drive the economic recovery from a desk in Whitehall. It needs to be done through regional government. And I think the mayors will have a really important role to play in that. Yeah, and I think this is all, you know, levelling up stuff that we'll we'll get onto. But I'm really interested, actually, in getting your perspective in particular, because you've got quite a unique role in that, obviously, you're an MP as well as being a Metro mayor. How do those roles differ? How has it been kind of, you know, what roles have you taken on as a mayor during the pandemic, maybe, that you haven't seen as an MP and vice versa? I suppose it's a bit of a broader view, is it? It is. Somebody said to me the other day, I'm, I'm the only Labour MP in government. And that's a very privileged position. <laughs> and every seat, it doesn't always feel particularly privileged, but it is a very privileged position because our, our party, our movement wants to be in power. And at a regional level, we are. And I'm really fortunate as mayor, every single day I'm making decisions, often quite difficult decisions. I'm allocating resources and I'm getting things done here in South Yorkshire. So that's great. But with my other hat on, as as the MP for Barnsley Central, I'm in Parliament, albeit mostly virtually, trying to get the government to do more, trying to get the government to unlock additional investment to come into the north uh, and and into South Yorkshire in, in particular. So it is a unique arrangement. It's one that there has been much commentary as to the, the wisdom of it all. And it's hard work. And it is a real juggling act for me personally. But I think it was it was the right thing to do. And it gives South Yorkshire the opportunity to be represented in Parliament in a way that the other regions are not able to be represented. But the great frustration is is that we don't have that kind of government working as closely with us as obviously I would like. Hmm. So let's talk about that a bit, because we've heard so much, haven't we, about levelling up and how the government has said that they want to work with Metro Mayors, they want to create more, they want to, you know, really deal with the regional inequalities that we know exist in this country that are massive. And, I mean, talk me through a bit what levelling up, I suppose, would mean to you. It's a phrase that we hear all the time now, and it makes me cringe a little bit, actually, um, because I hear it so often. But what does it mean to you? Well... As a basic principle, I'm very supportive of the concept of levelling up the country. This isn't a kind of sort of north-south divide thing necessarily. Mm. It's an acknowledgement that the country is more regionally imbalanced than any other developed country in the world. So I absolutely support the aspiration 
to level up. And South Yorkshire, Yorkshire and the North stands ready to be leveled up. You know, we've done a huge amount of work in terms of creating investment opportunities, in terms of drawing together transport strategies. We've got an economic plan. So we are doing our bit at our end. But what we don't yet have from the government is a detailed strategic plan as to how they're going to do it. We don't have the necessary long-term investment, which I think needs to be at a transformational level. So whilst this is a, a noble aspiration and one that I fully support, the government haven't yet followed through on the commitment as to how they're actually going to do it. And they will need to work very closely with regional mayors and with local authorities because the country is not going to be levelled up from Whitehall. It will require significant investment that we haven't seen to date because the biggest frustration that I have as being mayor is, as I say, it's a great privilege to do it, but the reality is much of the time we are tinkering, not transforming. And if we are serious about transforming the north of England and our communities that do need levelling up, we need to see both a plan and the investment required to do that. So I suppose my question leading on from that, Ben, is, and I've mentioned it on this podcast previously, the phrase levelling up has been applied to so many things now from kind of, you know, disability rights to uh, race inequality and um, kind of Black Lives Matter protests. And, you know, these are all very worthy things that need to be fixed. Is Has levelling up just become a bit of a slogan then? Well, I remember um, we've had a number of, of political slogans over the year. Over the years, uh, David Cameron used to call uh, or refer to the big society, and mm. that never really kind of sort of came to fruition. And I think there is a risk that levelling up sort of fits into the sort of same category. When you talk to government ministers about it, their focus tends to be on infrastructure, and infrastructure is a really important part of the levelling up agenda. You know, we haven't had the kind of levels of investment coming into our communities here in the north that we need uh, and set against the investment that we've seen in more affluent parts, particularly of London and the southeast of England. So levelling up does need to be about infrastructure, particularly in our transport system. But I think it does need to be much broader than that. Ultimately, for me, levelling up is about investing in our people. It's about very significantly reducing those long-standing inequalities that we've seen uh, both in health and education. So if the government really is serious about the levelling up agenda, yes, we want to see infrastructure investment and a plan to do that. And I work very closely with TFN, Transport for the North, in terms of having the plans in place to do that. But for me, it also needs to be about that levelling of the playing field, which means that a kid that grows up in Barnsley gets the same life opportunities as a kid that grows up in Belgravia, you know, a much more affluent part of the country. And, and for me, levelling up is about um, giving people the best possible start in life. And that's about education skills and it is about health as well. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned health because we do know, don't we, the kind of life expectancy and the health outcomes of, of people that live, you know, in the part of the world that you represent in the part of the world that I um, report on are significantly worse than other more affluent parts of the country. And there's there's an injustice there, surely. There's a very long-standing injustice that we've all known about. You know, all of my time in politics has been dominated by these injustices. But I think COVID has shone a spotlight again on those regional health inequalities. And we've seen that in terms of the impact that the pandemic has had. You know, poorer communities have been hit harder. You know, those more deprived areas have been levelled down 
even further than was the case before the pandemic. And I think actually in the rollout of the vaccine as well, you know, somebody who is 70 living in Barnsley will likely not be as well as somebody who's 80 in a much more affluent part of the country. And I've, I've raised my concerns with the minister responsible for the rollout to think about how we can address those inequalities. What I want to see, though, looking to the medium and longer term, it is a plan that comes from national government that invests in the health, the well-being, and also the happiness. I think it's really important to talk about happiness as well, because let's face it, this has been a really tough time for millions of people, and we need to think about the impact it's had on people's mental health. But let's use this as an opportunity, you know, a more than a once-in-a-generation opportunity to think about how we can support our NHS and how we can more effectively invest in the health and well-being of our population so that we can you know, level the playing field and mean that people can lead healthy, long, rewarding lives in every corner of the country. And that is not the case at the moment. And that is a very long-standing injustice that needs to be remedied. Yeah, I suppose one of our concerns at, at the Yorkshire Post and um, one that was actually raised with me by um, Bob Kerslake as well was that actually it's very easy for civil servants to kind of slap a levelling up label on some policy and kind of tick a box and say, yep, that's done now without actually kind of getting into the detail of, of the kind of, you know, what specific areas need. And I suppose that brings us to you know, what we've already spoken about a bit and what I'd like to speak about more of, of devolution and really making policy that benefits a place. Is that, you know, what what kind of role do you think mayors have in the formation of that policy? And do you feel like you're being listened to in that regard? Well, firstly, Bob Kerslake has done some of the really useful heavy lifting in thinking about what investment is going to be required to level up the country over the longer term. One of my great frustrations with with government is that it's too short-termist, it's too based around the political cycle, uh, and some of the investment decisions, admittedly quite tough, difficult decisions, aren't taken because they won't deliver in the short term. And I do think that we need to be a bit more strategic about the way in which we invest and organise ourselves. I think in terms of your point about the mayors, I think that the mayors have got a fundamentally important role to play in terms of shaping our communities and shaping the future direction of travel of our, of our regions. And I think with a mayor, you get that direct uh, democratic accountability. You know, people invest their faith and their trust in a, in a named individual or not. And that person then has a mandate to deliver real and meaningful change and improvement for people's lives in their area. But that will only happen if the responsibilities invested in the mayor are also backed up by significant amount of resources. And I think that is an ongoing conversation between mayors and national government as to where the kind of, sort of where the responsibilities lie and what resources made available. We will be getting at some point later this year, I hope, a devolution white paper that will be the next step in this important journey. I've always said that devolution is a process, not an event. There's been some progress made with the setting up of mayoral combined authorities and the introduction of a mayoral system, I think that is a good step forward. But I think we need to go much further in empowering those mayors with the resources and the, the responsibilities they need to really transform their communities for the better. I'm glad you mentioned the um, devolution white paper, actually, because it is something we all kind of await with uh, with bated breath. But um, 
there has been some suggestion that the government is going a bit soft, a bit cold on devolution, that really after, you know, people like yourself and, um, and Andy Burnham kind of stood up for their areas of COVID support that maybe they're not so keen on it anymore. Is that the feeling you're getting or not so much? Because we do have the West Yorkshire election, of course, later this year. And as I understand it, North Yorkshire is pushing ahead as well. What's the feeling you're getting when you kind of you know speak to government ministers? I think there's a bit of unrequited love when it comes to the relationship between mayors and national government. I remember almost a year ago having conversations with the Prime Minister. In fact, I spoke to the Prime Minister in Rotherham about his economic ideas and how he thought that mayors could drive the, um, the sort of future economic growth of, of our regions. That was, well, in fact, that was more than a year ago. And since then, we've had some contact with the Chancellor about it. But in recent months, there seems to be a bit of a calling in that relationship. And I think that the government have felt challenged on occasion by the authority that some of the mayors have shown. And I think that that is a real shame, because particularly at this moment in time, we do need that coming together, that partnership working between government ministers in Westminster and Whitehall and mayors across the country. Again, it's not a party political point. The Metro mayors work very constructively on a cross-party basis. You know, we meet on a very regular basis. We agree on much of the kind of the, the, the mayoral agenda, particularly when it comes to issues like skills, public transport and, and economic regeneration. I do think, though, that the government's commitment to devolution and to mayors is increasingly starting to be questioned. And what I hope that they will do in the forthcoming budget, and that provides an opportunity for them to demonstrate their credentials in this area, it is show us that they want to work with us, that they want that partnership, that they understand that levelling up can't be done from the centre, but has to be done from the regions. And they invest in us and the work that we've done around economic recovery from COVID. Because if we want our country to be truly successful in a way that it isn't at the moment, we need to make sure that every corner of the kingdom succeeds, primarily in an economic sense to, be, to begin with. And that requires that close partnership working that we haven't seen to the degree that I would have liked in recent months. And I think that's a real missed opportunity. And I hope that the government will look at how we can work more closely together in the future. I think a really good way of demonstrating their commitment actually would be to announce a um, candidate for the West Yorkshire um, mayoral race. I mean, we're three months out and I know that you guys at Labour have got uh, Tracy, Tracy Braven, um, current MP for Batley and Spen Up, but um, the Conservatives haven't got a candidate yet. I mean, is that worrying that they don't seem to be kind of, I don't know, getting getting really into their teeth into it and taking part at the moment? Well, from a political point of view, it's quite puzzling why just a few months ahead of a really important election and you know i speak with some degree of insight into this the the west yorkshire mayor job is hugely important for the for the west yorkshire region but actually for the wider north it is a very important political contest and i think it is just baffling why the conservative party have not selected a candidate at this stage i think you know given the scrutiny that increasingly are on mayors you know, people in Yorkshire and West Yorkshire rightly will want to look very carefully at who the candidates are, look at their manifestos and take a view as to who they think is best place to represent them, uh, both locally, regionally, but also nationally and internationally as well. So it is perplexing why there isn't yet a Conservative candidate. And, you know, in Tracy Braben, I think we've got someone 
who has got all the potential to be an excellent mayor. And she's getting out there, you know, in a virtual sense, having those kind of conversations, listening to people and drawing together the basis of her offer. But she doesn't yet have a have a named opponent. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. But these are really important elections and they deserve the highest calibre of candidates because these are big and important jobs. And West Yorkshire deserves a proper contest with credible heavyweight candidates. And I hope that that's what they will get. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I know I know you probably wouldn't say this because you're a very gracious politician, uh, Dan. But I, I, you know, I do think that, um, you know, the, the chances of a Conservative mayor being elected in West Yorkshire are probably slim. But when I've spoken to, you know, Amanda Milling, the party chairman in the past, she's said, you know, they're up for fighting it, that they don't think it's a... It's a dead sir. I must say a few Conservative MPs I've spoken to aren't um, too uh, confident about the prospects either. But then we look to North Yorkshire, where maybe there is more of an opportunity as their devolution deal progresses, that any elected mayor there might be um, a Conservative pick. So I think things have changed, haven't they? It's not it's not just um, it's not just Labour's race anymore. Well, we're living through the most strange political times and nobody quite knows what the next few weeks, months and years will bring. I mean, let's be honest, we don't even know for absolute certain that the elections will be taking place in May. The government say that they are going to proceed and that there will be an election in May. So people are getting ready for that. But these mayoral jobs uh, are really important ones. You know, you have huge opportunity to sort of shape your region uh, for the better but you need to be working closely with a range of different organizations you obviously need to work very closely with the local government leaders but also there's that link to national government as well so you know clearly uh, supporting Tracy Brabin of, of course I am I think she would be great but I think the Conservative Party do need to pick a candidate and get on with that so that people who haven't made their mind up in West Yorkshire get the opportunity to, to take a view and make an informed decision and I hope that they get that opportunity sooner rather than later. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then we can get them in the YP and I can ask them all the um, important questions. But, uh, you know, you mentioned the weeks and uh, months ahead there. And we do have some pretty significant milestones coming up. We're expecting the budget next month where, um, you know, Rishi Sunak will stand up at the dispatch box and um, give us what I imagine is going to be quite grim economic news if we look over the last year, but I'm sure that um, people like you have been banging on his virtual door with your list of asks. What is on? What's on your wish list this this time around, Dan? Well, I have been knocking on his door in a, in a virtual sense, and I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that the Chancellor is a Yorkshire MP. You know, he represents mm. a a wonderful North Yorkshire parliamentary constituency, and I think this budget on the third of March, it's a date that's ingrained in my in my mind, is a duty important opportunity for Rishi Sunak to demonstrate his credibility as a Chancellor who really cares and really wants to unlock the potential of the north of England. Look, I've always gotten pretty well with Rishi, but I do think he needs to demonstrate his continued support for the Northern Powerhouse. We hear very little about that these days. The currency of debate seems to be around levelling up. So I think for Rishi Sunak and for the budget on the 3rd of March, it's a really important opportunity to work with regional leaders to unlock the potential of the north of England. In South Yorkshire, we've done some very detailed pieces of work that underpin the budget submission that we've put forward. So over the course of the summer, we we brought together what we called a renewal action plan. And we've recently published a strategic economic plan. So we've got the basis of our plan to level up South Yorkshire and to 
you know, regenerate our economy following on from the COVID pandemic. But we simply don't have the resources to do that ourselves. And that's why we need that support from national government. And that's why the budget on the 3rd of March is a hugely significant moment for the Chancellor to understand the pressures and the challenges that our economy face, to look at the work that we've done to identify opportunities for how we can grow our economy, not just in a kind of wanting a bigger economy, but wanting a better economy. You know, I think you know the reality is that our economy doesn't work for most people, and we need to look at how we can make it more inclusive and more sustainable for the longer term. We've done the heavy lifting in terms of getting a plan in place to do that, but we need his support, and that's what I'll be looking for on the budget on the 3rd of March. What I'm interested in there is the importance of that tying in with COVID, because I, I imagine we can expect to hear a lot of, yeah, quite depressing um, news about how we're going to have to balance the books. But it sounds like from what you're saying that actually the way to help this recovery is actually to hand over the cash and, and let you build back. Oh, I don't want to use the government's term, but build back better as such in, in your own area in the ways that you know will work. There's a shared agreement amongst all of the metro mayors that where we're given resource to invest in our communities, we can do it much more effectively than anybody in Whitehall ever could. And we've now in South Yorkshire got the basis of investment plans. We're working very closely with our local authorities, but also with the private sector on a pipeline of investment opportunities to create good jobs for our local residents. So in the context of having left the European Union, in the context of a extremely serious and hugely challenging global pandemic, you know the state of our economy is obviously you know, very, very challenging. So this is the moment, more than we've seen since the end of the Second World War, really, for government to work closely with these new institutions, to invest in us, to give us the tools that we need to do the job of rebuilding our economy. And that's obviously for our benefit, but for the wider country as well. So Whilst the scale of the challenge is absolutely huge, you know, none of us should underestimate how difficult this is going to be. And I think, you know, the continuation of the furlough scheme would be incredibly helpful. I think we have to remain confident and upbeat about the benefits of investing in areas like ours. And that's why, you know, just this morning, you know, I've been uh, meeting with an Indian mayor to explore those potential opportunities globally. But at the same time, we need support from our own government here in Westminster. So the budget is a really big moment for the Chancellor to demonstrate his credibility as a Yorkshire MP to working with us as mayors and supporting our economy. And I really hope that he will take that opportunity. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I I hear a lot of the same kind of sentiments coming from, say, the Northern Research Group of Conservative MPs. I think a lot of politicians of you know whatever level whether we're talking mayors or mps or councillors are actually on the same page about this does that give you some i suppose hope that maybe all your christmases will come at once and your some of your asks will be met well i hope so and across the north both with the metro mayors because we've got conservative metro mayor in tees valley and in the west midlands And in the context of TFM, Transport for the North, where we have both Labour and Conservative members, we've been able to work pretty cooperatively together in the main to say to government that this is a big moment for us and that we want you to work with us to unlock the huge potential that we all know exists in in the north of England. It is a very long-standing frustration to me personally 
I think the north of England is, is, is a kind of wonderful place to be, to live, to grow up in, to invest in. There is so much potential, but there are barriers that hold us back. But I can see how you can get over those barriers, get around, get through however you want to do it. But ultimately, that requires the support of, of national government, and they need to work with us on a plan to do that. It's all doable. It's all fixable with the will, with the investment, and, and with a plan to do it. The government have you know, made much on their commitment to the north of England and, and to level up, and, and that is fine as far as it goes. But we really are now at the point where they've got to evidence that commitment with a plan and with significant resource. You know, This is not the moment to be tinkering. It is the moment to be transforming. We're ready to do that. The Northern Metro mayors are ready to do that, but we need national government to do it as well. So the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, huge opportunities for them, but they've got to step up, work with us, give the resources that we need to level up our communities, not least given the huge impact that COVID has had on us, because we are being levelled down, literally as we speak, and we need to arrest that decline and get us heading in the right direction. And you know, The other Metro mayors and myself stand ready to work with them in order to do that. Absolutely. I think my last kind of point on this is what what does that look like? So say, you know, we get to when was it? Third of March. And, um, you know, you are asks and met and then we look in, I don't know, five, ten years time. What would your hope be for South Yorkshire then? What would your hope be for, you know, those those children who are growing up now and will be, you know, adults going into into the into into workplaces in however many years? What would your hope for them be? My hope for them would be that they don't feel the need to go to other parts of the country in order to lead rewarding professional careers. Mm-hmm. And I think what what we've seen far too often is really bright kids, you know, growing up in, in my part of the world who've done well academically uh, and may, maybe they've gone to university, maybe they've done their first graduate job, or maybe they're in a high-skilled apprenticeship but they've taken a moment to look around and decided for their own longer-term benefits, they need to go down to London or to the southeast of England. And I think success over the longer term looks like those young people, perhaps the children of those young people, not feeling the need to pack their bags and head off down to London. Because in Sheffield and South Yorkshire, and certainly across the wider north, There are those opportunities in place so they don't need to move and they can lead that rewarding professional career, whatever it may be, up here in the north of England. All of that is is perfectly doable. But at the moment, the real risk is that the resources that we have to unlock that potential are less than they previously would have been. So the levelling up fund that the government announced back in the autumn won't deliver as much money as we would have had under the original uh, arrangements. And that's a real concern when you want to level up that economy and you want to kind of level that playing field. So ultimately, you know, the longer term test of this will be about those professional health, education skills and training opportunities for people coming through the system. That is a long term game and requires investment over the long term. You know, We're ready to do that. But as I say, it needs to be a partnership arrangement with national government and we need their support, which we haven't had in the way I would have liked to date. Yeah, and let's hope let's hope we get there. Um, now, look before you go, I can't let you go without asking 
about you as well. We were talking about the West Yorkshire elections, but your term is up next year. What are your plans? Are you standing again or have you not decided yet? What's the what's the situation there? <laughs> well, I, th- I thought you might get onto that at some point. Um, the, the world feels a very different place um, to me from when I first decided to, to run as, as the South Yorkshire mayor. As, as you will recall, there was a very live debate about what the devolved arrangement should be for Yorkshire. I was a, a passionate supporter of the, of the one Yorkshire arrangement. I still think there's, there's huge merits to that. But since then, we've seen Britain's departure from the European Union. We've seen, obviously, the massive impact that COVID has had. We've seen the kind of sort of developing uh, devolution story uh, around the country. So I, I do really believe in the power of mayors to, to do good and, and to make a difference. And it is a wonderful privilege um, to serve in this role. Ultimately, what I will have to do is, is take a view about what's in the best interests of my constituents uh, and decide what I'm going to do over the longer term. We're not at that point because... All of my time, every single day, seven days a week, without fail, is consumed by responding to the huge pressures and the challenges of this pandemic. So hopefully, as we kind of come out of the lockdown some point in the not too distant future, there will be a a moment of calm and I can sort of take a moment to assess where we've got to and think about the longer term future. But I do feel deeply privileged to be doing this mayoral role in the way that I do. I know it was a controversial decision that I took to remain in Parliament. It was the right thing to do. We wouldn't have got the deal agreed in South Yorkshire if I hadn't done that. So I'm lucky to do the two. Uh, I continue to feel very privileged to have the opportunity to do them both. And I'll keep doing them uh, for the duration of this term and then and then take a decision about what the future might hold. That is my plan, Jerry. <laughs> I, I do wonder, and you're going to curse my name as I uh, as I ask you this, if you'll uh, take a leaf out of uh, your colleague Andy Burnham's book and say you've not ruled out a uh, Labour kind of leadership bid yet. <laughs> well, I think Andy probably slightly kind of regrets uh, getting into that debate yesterday. I'm certainly uh, not going to get into that, uh, that debate because I think he is doing a brilliant job under the most difficult circumstances. Being the leader of the opposition is the hardest job in politics, and I think he's done a fantastic job uh, and I will do everything that I can to support him. Absolutely. You can't blame me for getting a couple of cheeky ones in at the end there. <laughs> Look, Dan, thank you so much for coming on Podzone Country. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and hopefully we can have you back soon. My pleasure. Look forward to it. Thank you. So it's so great to have you on Podzone Country. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Um, I, I wouldn't claim that lockdown is great fun, but I am in um, a beautiful part of the country in my wife's little farm in the New Forest. So um, to the extent to which you can enjoy lockdown, I am. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, you've, um, you're joining us today because you've got a uh, you've got a new book out, Money and Power, uh, The World Leaders Who Changed Economics. And look, I, I, I want to speak about it. Well, I want to really get into it and speak about it a lot. But what can you tell us? What's the overview of the book for listeners that might not know that, that it's on its way? Well, my starting point is that I'm perhaps a bit unusual that I spent half my professional life as an economist working in business, government uh, and the academic world. And I spent half of it in politics as an MP and a cabinet minister and a party leader. And I was fascinated by the way that these two separate worlds 
relate to each other. I mean, actually, when you think about it, I mean, economic policy, you know, the, the, the things that affect our living standards um, are basically made by politicians. Um, we're not economists and uh, are reliant on the advice they get. Sometimes you subcontract this stuff to, for example, the Bank of England looks after interest rates. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, it's uh, politicians who don't have any economic training who uh, are responsible for setting taxes and the budget uh, and the many economic policies that, that governments do. And what I what struck me looking back on in history is the way that there are people who come along, and Margaret Thatcher's an obvious case in Britain, uh, Roosevelt in America, or Deng Xiaoping in China, extraordinary individuals who have totally turned on its head the way that economic policy was done, uh, mostly for the good, but sometimes for bad. Uh, and I wanted to understand, looking at these important figures in history, you know how, how they affected e economics. Uh, and I want future generations of students who look at economics uh, to try and um, look at it through political lens to, to understand how decisions are actually made in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. You've got 16 um, world leaders in there, haven't you? I mean, how did you how did you pick the 16? Because as you quite rightly say, kind of, you know, in, at the start of the book, you could you could go far further back in history than you have. How did you come to the 16 that you picked? Well, I started with Alexander Hamilton because he's the first recognisable um, politician in the way that we think of politics today. In a, in a, and also obviously now very well known for the musical. Now very well, for, for other reasons, <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, but he was a sort of titanic figure in many ways because he set the foundations for modern America, um, mm -hmm. modern capitalism in America. But he was also a top-flight politician. He could very easily have become president, but he made an enemy of key people like Jefferson and Madison. He was a, quite an, a, a difficult individual, I think. He died mm. in a duel, so quite a difficult man. And he hated some of, of his contemporaries, particularly Jefferson, who was a slave owner, and uh, uh, Hamilton was strongly against slavery. Um, but he, he, he lived in this world where he was a politician, but he was also thinking and doing um, major economic change. And he was the first person in history who you could really put in that, that box. And then I, I started with, I think, eight um, characters. And then I realized that I wasn't really capturing uh, the modern world, which is heavily moved towards Asia. Uh, so I, I have introduced some of the leading Asian characters, uh, Park in Korea, you know, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, and above all, Deng Xiaoping in China, and more recently, Abe and Abenomics in, in Japan. And these are sort of key figures in shaping the modern world. So I expanded into Asia. And then I realized there were a few gaps. I hadn't got anybody who had made real um, what we call social democracy, you know, getting this balance between uh, a market economy and fairness. And uh, so I, I looked at Erlander, who was probably the, the, you know, the dominant figure in post-war Sweden. It was a big success story, um, but very little known. And then I realized also I hadn't taken into account some of the people who um, in many ways would be regarded as bad failures from economic point of view, uh, but were actually politically very successful. I mean, Peron in Argentina, there have been six 
Peronist presidents, and they keep going back, making the same mistakes. But they're very popular, um, and they keep being re-elected. So there must be something that we need to understand. And particularly now we've got Trump, who was my last character. Um, you know, we, we, there's a lot of um, opprobrium being heaped on Trump, quite rightly, for the things he's said and done. Uh, but actually, he left behind an economic policy, which for the most part, and particularly the economic nationalism and the tariffs, have proved very popular in America and have been continued by his successors. Um, Mr. Biden's line on, on China and on tariffs is virtually identical to Trump, unfortunately. I think you're right. I don't think we're going to be getting rid of the legacy of uh, of Donald Trump anytime soon. Um I suppose one of the big questions here is for, you know, normal people, not uh, not uh, people like you and I who are often embedded in this kind of stuff. Why does this link between um, the economy and politics matter? I mean, I suppose we hear it every election, don't we, the promises that are made. But why does it really matter to, you know, the man or woman on the street? Well, I think from, you know, the man, the man in the street, as you put it, uh, when we think about you know how we voted to general election until very recently, uh, the issues have, have pre- predominantly been around living standards and uh, how, how potential governments are going to look after us and levels of taxation and unemployment. You know, more recently, other issues have taken centre stage. You know, Brexit and um, the issues in Scotland and Ireland and around immigration, but for the most part, uh, it's the you know the pound in your pocket has been a kind of dominant issue in political life. So mm-hmm. I think it's very important to understand how the politicians have got their economic prejudices. Where did they get them from? You know, what approach to economics is it that they understand? Um, and and that was. Um, you know, that was the issue I've tried to follow through in different countries where, you know, m- many of the same considerations apply as they do in the UK. Mm, absolutely. And I'm really interested, you know, reading through, it seems that a lot of these kind of, you know, titans, these people that really disrupt how how economies are run or, you know, have a have a big hand in change, they seem to kind of come around when there's a particular kind of crossroads or challenge for a particular country. Is that... Is that kind of what you found? Is it when particular, you know, society is in, I don't know, maybe the depths of a pandemic, you might say, that these kind of things tend to come around? Yes, uh, there there often is a sort of crisis point. Mm. Um, I think particularly in the UK, we had this period in the late 1970s when there was a sort of national mood, something must be done. And then we got Margaret Thatcher and all that followed from that. Um, in the United States uh, during the Great Depression that followed uh, 1929, th- there was this feeling something must be done. We've got we've got to try something different, and that's what led to the New Deal and, and Roosevelt. Uh, and there there have been similar sort of turning points in many countries. I looked at Balcherowicz, who was the author of the so-called Big Bang in in Poland. Um, and that, you know, leaving communism was such a, a turning point. And whether countries have done this well or badly, you know, very often hinges on whether there was a key individual coming up through the political world who was able mm-hmm. to take on the, the challenges. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm also kind of fascinated by the things that we see come up 
over and over again. It seems like over the last, what, 300 years that you look at, although obviously things have modernised, we see many of the same challenges over and over again, whether it's kind of, you know, improving standard of living or making sure there are jobs. It seems like various world leaders face the same challenges. Well, they did, yes. And I, I think the two things that stand out, well, they're two related things. I mean, the first is recognising that whatever politicians say in their rhetoric and their campaigning, they do finish up accepting that markets, uh, allowing markets to operate, is absolutely essential to any kind of functioning economy. I mean, one of the characters I use is perhaps a rather unusual choice uh, for a book of this kind. I looked at Lenin, who was, of course, mm. a 100% communist. Um, but towards the end of his life, uh, when you know war communism was in serious trouble, he opened up the Russian economy, the Soviet economy. Um, markets were allowed to operate, peasant farmers, small businesses were allowed to flourish. And it was extraordinarily successful. Of course, he then died before seeing the project through to its conclusion. But interestingly, uh, a young Chinese student who was in Russia at the time in the mid-1920s was Deng Xiaoping, and he saw what was happening. And uh, 50 years later, he was able to carry on this process. Uh, the second theme that runs through a lot of my stories is around the issue of free trade. Do you have open markets or not? And of course, this is of course an underlying point in the whole debate we've been having in the UK about Brexit. You know, do we want a customs union? Do we want a single market? Um, and in the case of the UK, I look back at, at Peel in the middle of the 19th century, who for 150 years effectively changed the way that the British uh, looked at trade. We had hitherto been a very protectionist country and put up barriers of all kinds, particularly to food, but um, other things. And Peel opened the doors and they stayed open till you know, very recently, arguably, we, we still have it. Um, Hamilton took America in the opposite direction. Bismarck took Germany in the opposite direction. Um, some of my Asian figures took one direction or the other. So an underlying question um, behind all of these leaders, you know, do we want an open economy or a closed economy? And I finish up with Trump, who said, well, you know, we want to turn America inwards. Um, and that's a big, big issue that the political class, wherever it is, has to face. So that's really interesting, because I know, like you say, you've got some more recent figures in there. You mentioned Trump, for example. But it seems like some of the themes are things that are still, you know, still relevant, extremely relevant today. And things that do you think that our politicians that we see now are still drawing on on these figures, on these characters for inspiration for their policy, maybe? No, that, that's exactly right. Um, many of the uh, ideas that we use today uh, were taken out of the, the books of Adam Smith, who wrote in the latter part of the 18th century. Um, it's, his ideas are still taught. I mean, I taught them when I had a stint uh, lecturing at the University of Glasgow, and mm. it's very much part of our way of thinking about the world. And most of the things he said were right, um, but they've been, of course, updated and modernized. But he's very much embedded in our way of thought. Um, you know, and, and there are other people going back to, you know, Smith's time who, who, who took, an, took an opposite point of view. There was a so-called mercantilist who believed that a trade between two countries should always be balanced. 
And then amazingly, in the middle of um, our period, up pops President Trump with an identical version of this uh, old-fashioned um, 17th to 18th century theory. Um, <laughs> so these, in a way, these ideas you know, continue to circulate for good or ill. And we see, don't we? You know, you, you mentioned in the in the introduction the various uh, names that that get attributed, whether it's a uh, Reaganomics or Ironomics or Rogernomics. And we we kind of uh, we attribute these, I suppose, theories and ways of doing things to particular people. How important have the personalities been? Have you found in 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 this in your essays through? through making sure these policies get through or implementing these particular systems? How important is the person? Well, sometimes, you know, these big changes have been pushed through by very dominating personalities who made the difference because of their political personality. I suppose Margaret Thatcher was a very good example in this country, Roosevelt in the United States. These were towering figures, whether you like them or not, and they were able to impress their view of the world on the country. But some of the other people I deal with were actually quite meek and humble, mm. uh, but nonetheless achieved a phenomenal amount. I think my best example, and a man who isn't celebrated enough, um, is Manmohan Singh, who uh, was a very quiet civil servant, economist, who had served uh, Mrs. Th- uh, Mrs. Gandhi and her, 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 her father, um, Nehru, um, dutifully, uh, mm. and was identified by the Congress party at the beginning of the 1980s as somebody to become finance minister, become a politician, and introduce a raft of very radical reforms, which had an enormous effect on India. For 20 years, India did extremely well. It was growing at the speed of China or more at one point. Uh, and a lot of this can be traced back to his influence. I mean, eventually he was you know, overpowered, essentially, by the complexities of, of Indian politics and the corruption. He was a very honest man, but it was a very corrupt system. And he sort of petered out. But he was able, um, in his own way, to achieve a phenomenal amount, despite not having a towering personality. But most of the figures I've talked about were big people. Do you have a do you have a favourite in in terms of interest in the sixteen that you've picked? Well, I think the most interesting, and I, I think there were two. Uh, I've mentioned both of them already. I mean, one of them was was part because they were in the two biggest countries in the world and made the biggest difference to people's lives. One was Manmohan Singh in India, mm. and the other, even more, was Deng Xiaoping in China, who took. Mm. China at a very low point after Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution. It was a complete mess, uh, very, very poor country, uh, wasn't really going anywhere. Um, and as a result of the reforms which he introduced and passed on to his successors, China, of course, is now an economic superpower, um, phenomenally successful, and people in the West worrying that it's too successful. Uh, but that, a lot of that was down to him personally. And I'm glad you kind of mentioned that with China, actually, because I'm really interested in the lessons that politicians can learn from their, you know, predecessors. What do you think or what do you hope maybe that people reading this might take forward? Is there Are there any lessons that you particularly think we can learn while looking at our current situation? Because, again, we're in a crisis, aren't we, where we're looking at how we can, especially around the globe, tackle 
the coronavirus pandemic and make the economy bounce back? Are there lessons that you've kind of found throughout that you think, oh, that really applies today? I, th- I think it's fair to say that um, I, I don't see anybody at the moment in the political world who really has the vision of a new kind of economic system. I don't see the equivalent today of the figures that I've talked about in my book, because we are faced with this massive challenge around the end of COVID and the mass unemployment that will reduce and the uh, environmental challenge around climate, new technologies. I don't see anybody getting their head around that. Um, you know, somebody will emerge and we will think in 20 years' time, gosh, you know, this was the Roosevelt of that era. But I I don't see it at the moment. I do see fragments of it. Um, One of the more interesting, if obscure, characters is this man called Abe, who gave his name to Abenomics in Japan. And Mm. he he sort of hit upon this view that was, was very much against the conventional wisdom uh, that actually to keep an economy going, and Japan was faced with serious stagnation after a major major financial crisis 30 years ago, uh, was that you had to have bigger and bigger deficits and not worry too much about accumulating debt. Uh, and in many ways, he has pioneered uh, what other governments like ours uh, are doing today. Uh, and it was the Japanese who also... Uh, effectively embarked upon this idea of quantitative easing, which has been used by central banks in the West. So he was he was a real pioneer. Um, it's possible um, that people in the Biden administration, you know, there's some very fine people, you know, who are beginning to get to grips with the challenge facing the, the biggest capitalist economy. Um, of course, they're, they're hemmed in by all kinds of political restrictions. But I do see sort of glimmers of people with a real vision. Absolutely. And we've obviously got the budget coming up next month. And, um, you know, we're talking about putting putting names to things. We have spoken about uh, Rishinomics as well. Whilst I've got you, what what would you hope to see next month, I suppose, as, as we're looking to claw the economy back out of this pandemic? Well, I think he and the government responded very well a year ago. And I think there's mm-hmm. common ground that, that by intervening on a massive scale to stop large-scale job losses through the furlough scheme uh, by, you know, eventually pumping in money to the economy to prevent it dying completely. Um, mm-hmm. This was the right response. Um, what I worry now is that they're, they're going to do a U-turn uh, too quickly. I mean, eventually, we are going to have to get back to um, balancing the budget and, and worrying about the scale of the national debt. But that's not a problem for now. Interest rates are extremely low. Uh, we can gradually grow out of the debt problem. But there is signs of a sort of panic in the Treasury, sort of clamping down on already very stretched government spending, um, throwing on taxes, big taxes, and that would be, I think, very, very inappropriate at this time. So I hope he will hold his nerve and not panic uh, and recognize we've just got to get very slowly and gradually back to financial normality and keep the economy growing. That's the priority. Absolutely. But it's been really, really interesting to talk about uh, talk about the book today. So that's Money and Power, The World Leaders Who Changed uh, Economics. And when is it out, remind me? Uh, it's out this week. So. Ah, how exciting. So people can get down, well, not get down to their local bookshops, well, but sadly, on, yes. from their local bookshops online, I suppose. Yes, that's <laughs> what I'm really missing, actually, the bookshops. 
Absolutely, me too. Well, thank you so much for coming on to have a chat about it and I'm sure we can have you back again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Pods Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and you can find this podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts. We really, really appreciate your feedback. Please do leave us a review, subscribe, tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Jerry underscore E underscore L underscore scott and we will be back next week with another episode for you we'll speak to you then